This episode of The First Feature is sponsored by Musicbed. Musicbed believes everyone should have access to great music in their projects, regardless of their budget or workflow. That's why they just announced their all-new membership program, the first music licensing subscription of its kind, releasing this summer. Membership is here to make their world-class roster of artists and composers available for all of your projects. Membership will give you unlimited access to a majority of Musicbed's artists, all at a flat monthly or yearly rate, based on the types of films you make. And if you still want single-use licenses, they're not going anywhere. Membership is just a new option to make music licensing work better for your workflow. Be one of the first to learn more at musicbed.com membership. And don't forget, you can get 20% off your next on-site license at musicbed.com with coupon code FIRSTFEATURE20. Again, that's FIRSTFEATURE20. Welcome to The First Feature, a No Film School podcast. My name is Ryan Koo, and my first feature is titled Amateur. This is episode 10, the last one, the final episode, and I'm here with my co-host who was here for the first episode, because we like structure and to bring things full circle. It's a mark of good storytelling it, here. It's a good bookend. You yes. know, I, I intro it, and I, and I leave you be. Uh, this, is, this is Eric Lures from No Film School, and uh, you haven't heard him since episode one, unless you listen to the rest of our podcast, in which case you, you've just heard him Yeah, what's happened? A lot. What's happened? Did you wind up making the film? Yeah, so it, it, happened. it happened. Yeah, exactly. Because okay, I remember you were getting prepared, and you were excited about doing it, <laughs> you know, you, you were, you know, screenplay was written, et cetera. Yeah, it actually happened. Oh, wow. Amazing. Damn, okay. I took the shot. Congratulations. made it. <laughs> put some points on the board. <laughs> exactly. It's out in the world. So like any screening... Uh, there's usually a Q&A at the end and because this is a movie that Netflix released worldwide a lot of the conversation has been on social media and we've had the conversation here on the podcast and we did actually do a couple of screenings in New York and LA with Q&As or actually just the one in New York had a Q&A but we wanted to virtualize that here on the podcast so we opened up an email address and my Twitter and took some questions from readers who could ask about my film or just the process in general of getting a first feature made for their own projects. So uh, here we are. Yeah, so I, I will be playing the part of the person asking the question. There were many submissions uh, sent in, so we appreciate all the feedback. Uh, so let's just let's kick it off. Let's see where it goes. Uh, the first is from Jonathan Pickett. Jonathan writes, I just finished a polished draft of my first feature-length script. It's already gone through my usual feedback channels for notes, and now it feels tight, but I'm not sure I'm ready to start submitting it to the top screenplay contest. I'm not sure what to do with it to continue trying to improve it, and I don't want to pay for a script doctor, but I also want to try to persuade someone who's much more experienced than me to give me professional feedback. It just feels like I need help figuring out how to make it better from here on out. Any advice? Without knowing what the usual channels are mm-hmm. that you... that. Uh, he's gone through for feedback already, I wouldn't hesitate to submit it to screenplay contests because if you don't know somebody in your own life that does have a lot more experience, putting yourself out there, submitting to something, if you feel like it's tight, what's the worst that can happen? You know, I think part of the challenge in filmmaking is always getting over your fear of rejection and just accepting rejection as part of the process. And as I mentioned on a much earlier episode of this podcast, I pitched this movie 80 times. I was told no 79 times. And if I'd been too precious about the script and not sent it out there, 
I would have missed out on a lot of feedback. I would have missed out on opportunities or introductions from one person to another. So I think just because you don't win a screenplay contest, you may submit it and in the process get referred to somebody, get notes from somebody. Like that may actually be the way that you open up your work to the voices of others and find the person that you're looking for to give you feedback. So I wasn't, I wouldn't hesitate and be afraid of what might happen if, if the script doesn't rank highly or doesn't win or doesn't have the desired outcome. Sure. And once you get into that mode and do submit it to an actual contest or organization, uh, does that kind of make it more real? Is that such a driving force for you after getting that initial, you know, ask sent out? that now, okay, that may start some momentum or at least it gets over the original fears that I may have had for myself. It can at least tell you where you are, right? I mean, I I think there's probably a lot of contests that aren't particularly prestigious and and maybe those aren't worth the entry fee, but there are some out there that are well-known and we covered a lot of them in our quarterly grants and opportunities posts. But that's a good indicator if you don't score highly, then that tells you where you are and you need to go back and read some screenwriting books or tackle a different story or just work on your craft longer. But if you do really well, then you, you know, wouldn't regret having hesitated or not submitted to, to see what, what the opportunity was uh, you know, coming out of it. So I, I would encourage you to submit. Uh, and you know, I have been rejected for many things other than pitching a script to a producer co- and, and trying to get the movie made. You know, I've also been rejected from screenwriting labs or workshops or contests and that's part of the process is is by going in and filling out the forms that is the application process it helps you to think about your script it helps you to get to a deadline and to submit something and just keep pushing it forward and and just to not uh you know don't be discouraged by rejection because the rejection is sort of the default state of things in filmmaking and if you accept it as that and you just see it as part of the one of the steps along the way, then you know you won't be too uh, too crushed. Right, definitely. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, so, speaking of some of those opportunities that come with screenwriting, uh, our next question is from Kyle Taubkin. Uh, Kyle writes, he just gets right into it. Did you really just submit to the Sundance Writers Lab with zero connections or an in? Like you just filled out an application like everyone else and hoped for the best? The short answer is yes, I just filled out a form. The longer answer is more complicated than that. And I think a lot of people submitting to the labs have different stories. They might have met somebody at the lab. They might have been introduced. In my case, I submitted through the form. I was rejected, first of all. I submitted again the following year. I was rejected, second of all. And part of what I think people have found who've submitted through the form is if you do make it they have different stages that you can get through. And if you make it to a, a certain stage, then even if you don't, aren't selected for the lab, I think, and don't quote me on this because this is not the route that I took to get there, but I think that then you may be invited in the future to submit the full screenplay through uh, you know, the channel that sort of jumps you ahead of the process. So there's sort of a way that you can initially just start with the form, but you may proceed further in the process. In my case, and I mentioned this in one of the earlier episodes, I was introduced to them later by IFP, your former employer, right? by virtue of being in one of the uh, filmmaking programs that IFP runs. So yes, I did initially submit via the form, and then I was introduced, but that's all to say that getting into IFP, getting into Tribeca, 
CineReach, Film Independent, whatever it is, a lot of the the people at these organizations are all looking for similar things in the sense that they're trying to discover new voices and they're trying to bolster and give opportunities to to up and coming filmmakers. So getting in at any of these places can lead to one of the others in a way that I think is uh, is really great. Yeah. And that's that's what happened to me as I didn't I didn't submit to IFP hoping that they would introduce me to Sundance. But obviously uh, the outcome was great. Yeah. And so, yes, I did initially just submit the form and then. After years of rejection, I made a short that I submitted with the screenplay, and that made a huge difference. Cool. Well, that really does build up that momentum. Uh, our next question is from Petra Piskin, who's from Germany. Petra writes, uh, after having listened to the first episode of the podcast, I thought I could ask about some questions I have regarding pitching for your first feature. I'm currently developing my first feature, and I'm about to put together a final pitch document. I was wondering what kind of file formats and programs that you used besides PDF. Did you write the synopsis in basic programs like Pages or Word? What program did you use for the lookbook? And where did you get the picture slash references for that lookbook? Well, first of all, with regards to images in your lookbook, this is not something that's for public consumption. It's not something where you need to worry about copyrights. You can grab them from any source. In my case, I was either screen capturing them from a movie that I wanted to reference. Uh, I was using Google Images. That's always just a way of, of finding stuff out there. And then you can use uh, filters like you click on search tools and then you can choose a large image. So you're looking for high resolution images. And you can even, a lot of people will use images from stock sites, even if they have watermarks on them, right? You go to a stock site, you find an image you like, you download it. It's just for comping purposes. It, it might have a watermark on top of it, but you can use that in your lookbook. It's, you know, people, depending on what who you're pitching against, you know, if you're going to, if you're pitching at Warner Brothers on a $100 million movie, you're going to be up against some really elaborately done ripomatics and lookbooks yeah. and people have created custom material for it. But if it's an indie film, no one's going to say, well, why didn't you you know, pay the $100 to license that particular image that is in this document, not for public consumption. So you can find images everywhere and not worry about the copyrights because you're just dropping them in there. In my case, what programs I used, I tend to write a lot, if it's something like this, just in Google Documents because you can share it with somebody, you can get feedback, they can get, leave you notes if you have a producer or a co-writer or anything like that. And then once we were putting it into a pitch packet to send to people and wanted to make it look quite a bit nicer, I ended up using Adobe InDesign, which is the print version of Photoshop, essentially. And that's just because for me, with my background as a graphic designer at MTV for three years, I have far too much knowledge at this point in all Adobe programs. I mean, I've yeah. spent years of my life in Photoshop, After Effects, Premiere, Illustrator, you name it, Audition. Yeah. That's what we're yeah. recording this podcast, yeah. podcast in right now. So, Adobe diehard. Yeah, so, so Adobe all the way. And now as a writer-director, I don't know that I'm going to be able to use all of those yeah. skill sets, but I, but I have them. So I used InDesign, but Pages is a great option. You know, the interesting thing about where we are right now is I don't know that PDF is the format of the future because of course people are going to be opening these on their phone a lot mm -hmm. and the pdf is usually designed eight and a half by for eight and a half by 11 print size which works on an ipad and may look fine on a laptop although computer screens are 16 by 9 and the vertical format of a page doesn't quite make sense so you know you can go landscape you can do other things um but yeah right now pdf still 
feels like the thing that everyone in the industry is passing around because it, it contains all the images. It opens in all the different devices, even if it doesn't reflow on your phone for the you know the kind of screen size that that would would make sense. Uh, so yeah, PDF. Gotcha. Cool. So our next question is from Francisco Silva, who is a film student, and Francisco mentions that Robert Rodriguez, for example, is certainly a name that is synonymous with amateur indie filmmaking, but a professor of his called Rodriguez an exception, emphasizing his ingenuity and creativity when encountering problems. Since not all filmmakers are created equal when applying their talents, they then rely on his or her crew to apply their own skill set to whatever part of the equation, be it like sound, camera, or editing, the director may not be as accomplished in. So the question is, since filmmaking is a creative endeavor in general, and I would say a group endeavor in general, would this be considered a paradoxical observation? I think the valuable thing about Robert Robert Rodriguez's book and the whole story about how he made El Mariachi for $7,000, the book is called Rebel Without a Crew and it's quite famous in DIY filmmaking circles. There's a couple things, first of all, provisos and asterisks to that, which is $7,000 may have gotten some of the movie in the can, but they certainly spent a lot more in post-production. Absolutely. And that also that approach can also work for certain genres of film. If it's action, if it's horror, there's a way if you can involve the audience on no budget that I think that works in those genres, but maybe you couldn't do as much with a drama, for example. I think the valuable thing about his ethos is that he's saying, find a way to make a movie with what you have and do the best you can to tell a story instead of waiting for the Calvary to come. Mark Duplass gave a great talk at South by a few years ago titled The Calvary is Not Coming. And it's about that rut that you can get stuck in waiting for somebody to finance your film and never getting anything made and never learning as a filmmaker. And Amateurs is an example of that. In my case, though, I had already done a DIY El Mariachi style mm-hmm. of project. Yeah. I had done a web series that was me and my co-director, Zach Lieberman. We had no budget and we shot it ourselves. And it was absolutely, I, I read Rebel Without a Film Crew. I mean, that's exactly where that web series came from. But there were, you know, we didn't have any insurance. We were shooting with fake prop guns in New York City. We were literally filming in actual crack houses and on roofs. I mean, it was it was like not a safe endeavor that we could continue and we had spent months and months and months finishing episodes because we didn't have any post money. So it just was it was something where I felt like I'd already tried that approach. I'd gotten an agent. So my next film, I was going to try to do something larger. And then by virtue of it being basketball, there was no way to do it DIY unless for some reason there's only one person on the basketball court instead of two teams and extras and referees. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and exactly. Coaches and, and all of those things. Um, so I would never look at... It's interesting that that your professor would call him an exception because I think every filmmaker needs to be an exception. You can't look at the way somebody else made it, especially if you're talking about someone who made it 10, 20, or 30 years ago because the industry has completely changed. For example, I saw some of Steven Soderbergh's early films. That was what made me want to be a filmmaker. But the industry has changed since then. And people who came up through music videos, people who came up through Cannes or Sundance... If you made a lot of money making independent films in the 90s, it's a different landscape than it was back then. So I think you can't look at other people's successes and try to duplicate it. You have to figure out who you are out in the real world, what your voice is, what makes you you, and how to tell that story in a way that's contemporary as opposed to 
well, Rodriguez had a turtle and a film camera and $7,000. Like, you can't look back. You have to look forward. And in that sense, I think the professor is right that that's not instructive. Yeah. And uh, use that maybe as a source of inspiration, but not necessarily as a guideline step-by-step to follow. Yeah. On the other hand, getting your first project made by whatever means necessary with very few resources is a tried and true method. And Mm -hmm. that's the takeaway from that. Absolutely. Our next question is from Ryan Summers. And this is just a pretty basic question about if we have any advice about optioning a short story that you've seen. Uh, So if you have a short story in mind that you'd maybe want to turn into a short or a feature project, is there any kind of advice for doing that? How does one even begin that process? I'm not the best authority on this because I haven't optioned a short story, but similar to the filmmaking industry, authors have agents, managers, and those kind of people. That's probably who you're going to go through. So on the short story, if it's a collection of short stories, for example, on the opposite side of the title page, there's going to be listed the copyright holder. That's usually a publisher, and they will usually have contact information. And so that's who you reach out to initially to try to option the rights to this story. You can also find out if somebody else holds the rights if that story's already been optioned here in the U.S., you can go to the copyright office and search. It's just copyright.gov. And you can search for the title and see if somebody else owns it, if somebody has, if they've already assigned the rights to the story to a film producer. So via those two methods, I think you can start the outreach process of trying to get in touch with who, who owns the rights because it might not actually be the author. And then you really want to try to engender yourself to the author to bring your vision to this project and to convince them as to why you're the right person to tell a story. Because if you can excite them, then the amount of money you're going to pay for the option may be different than if they see it as if they're just trying to sell it to the highest bidder. Absolutely, yeah. And maybe that'll take you to the Library of Congress and things like that, which is also a valuable resource for diving deeper into who has those rights. Um, Our next question is from David Hines. It's somewhat specific. Uh, David is an indie producer who completed shooting around 60% of his first film back in December, which was eight days on a, funny enough, $7,000 budget. And they've closed up shop until later this year. They realize that they need more funds to bring in in order to finish. They're currently looking for grant opportunities and potential equity investors to join as EPs to help get across the finish line. And with so much already done, David says, we believe we can finish up production pretty comfortably if we bring in around another eight to $10,000. We're putting together a sizzle reel and sample scenes using the footage we've already shot to show to interested parties. Do you have any suggestions as to additional methods we could use to bring in more funds to finish the project? Well, obviously, based on my own experience, there's crowdfunding. Kickstarter, Seed and Spark, Indiegogo, all of those types of platforms can be a way to raise a few thousand dollars. And a few thousand dollars, even if you don't have a lot of context, if you're trying to raise a lot of money, then you're going to want a, a more sizable Rolodex. So that's, of course, one way. The other way is, as he mentioned, to raise equity. What you see people do in filmmaking often is to throw basically an investor party, which is something where you put together the nicest event you can on whatever your budget is. So on a higher end scale, that might be at some really nice hotel, private event with screens and you show a reel and you give a speech and you schmooze. And, you know, if, if your uh, investors are interested in certain things, you want to have those at the party, whether that's if it's a sports movie and you can invite athletes, if um, 
whatever it is. You yeah. know, you want to have a certain uh, draw to the event. Yeah, theme it to your project. In a way. And by virtue of, of getting FaceTime with investors, you know, a lot of people are, are looking to get into movies because of the connections, because of the social aspects, because of the premiere and the red carpet and all that. And if you can make it something that appeals to somebody beyond just the, the document and the PDF, if you can show your personality and your charisma and they believe that you're going somewhere with an event, then that can help raise financing or make investor connections, even if it's not in this movie, but for the next one. So that's something that people will definitely do. And that's a great reason to work on your sizzle reel so that you can show it at one point there and then mix and mingle and get some business cards. And Or if people even do that anymore, I guess you just use mm-hmm. your phone and exactly. say, hey, let me get, get your, your contact info. Exactly. Uh, but then, you know, you can the fact that you're throwing an event allows you to send some emails out, ask for help from people to introduce you to anyone who might be interested in this. You might make some new contacts that way in a way that you wouldn't if you weren't throwing an event, right? Like a, a party is a reason for it, for something, mm-hmm. to invite people, to have a good time, to eat some free food, drink some drinks. So if you're only trying to raise a few thousand dollars, obviously you don't want to spend a few thousand dollars on this party, which then becomes the same question as the, the El Mariachi approach is, how can you throw an event like this with what you have? You know, Rodriguez had a turtle and a camera and a guitar case. If if, yeah, <laughs> if you're trying to throw a party, yeah. like how much money are you putting yeah, in? Who has a nice apartment, money? or who's the organization that has a space that you can use that you know personally that you can light a little mm-hmm. bit nicer than yeah. it looks during the day, and, and try to turn it into something that people want to be a part of, and then that that's what will incentivize them financially, hopefully. Speaking of financially, uh, Kennard Blackwell on Twitter wrote, uh, "Ryan, how are you supporting yourself financially during the time of developing?" writing and pre-production on amateur three words no film school yeah i mean i started no film school in 2010 the first month that i ever tried to monetize it it made 57 cents so that was not a recipe for immediate lucrative and then success. it went up it went up though people so, well that's yeah. the nice thing yeah, is yeah. it did go up from yeah. there because it, it didn't go down from 57 cents yeah. per month but you know from starting it in 2010 i started working in this movie shortly thereafter uh, I had been a senior designer at MTV for a few years. I had saved up some money in the bank for the initial period when I was launching a film school. It wasn't at first that I was supporting myself. It was more that I had removed all of the drains on my bank account. I was living as frugally as possible. And I wrote about this on No Film School. We'll link to it in the article accompanying this podcast. I lived out of a suitcase for 11 months. And that was the time in which I was initially researching and writing this story. So I spent very, very little money that year because I had no rent. And that's sort of the flip side of the coin, right? Is how are you supporting yourself? Well, if you, what you need to live is very variable. Right. And not everybody can do that. If you have a family, you have other commitments, if you're not willing to live out of a suitcase. Mm-hmm. And, but obviously I was working on this movie more than that initial uh, salad days year where I wasn't making mm-hmm. any money. So thankfully, no film school was my day job. And not just writing articles, I wrote the first over a thousand posts here at No Film School, but I was also researching how to monetize it. And the idea was that as it grew, I could bring on additional writers and that because an article that I write would stay up all the time, that it could be generating traffic. I didn't have to be there constantly tending to it, which means I could write an article, I could post it, share it on social media, and then I could go work on my screenplay. And that's how I, I did it. But the two were pretty separate. I mean, that approach of having something that you do to pay the bills outside of 
working on a screenplay is is it, it could be any job and in, in this case it just happened to be running a website which had some synergies and some advantages to to it being less than a full-time job but that's the other side of it is if if you're really really committed to it to also remove some of the expenses from your life is the other option yeah and did you were you strict with yourself about dedicating a certain amount of hours to each like was no film school your day job and then i will stick to that from 10 to 5 or what have you and things of that nature yeah exactly so initially I was disappointed with how much time I was spending on no film school because it was the thing that was putting food on the table. Therefore, I had to spend more time on it. So I tracked my hours. There's hour tracking apps. There's all sorts of them now in the early days. I think FreshBooks had one. Harvest had one. Some of these business tracking ones where you usually are doing client work, where you're billing clients. That's how you track hours. In this case, I was the client and I was just tracking it for myself privately. But what I wanted to do is to give myself some analytics to make myself honest about where my priorities were because in filmmaking people say all the time i'm a screenwriter i'm a director i'm a filmmaker but the truth is if you're spending 80 percent of your working hours on something and not in 20 percent of the time on filmmaking you're actually what that other thing is and i wanted to ensure that i wasn't one of those people so I started tracking how much time I was spending on no film school. I'd clock in, be working, and then clock out. And when I went into screenwriting, I would clock in there. And over the course of a year, again, I wrote about this on no film school. We'll link to the article, which was how to track your time and why hours don't lie. It was the title of the article. I learned over the course of the year that I had spent way more time on no film school than I had on amateur. And so then my goal for the following year was to flop those and I did that because I had the analytics and I couldn't lie to myself. And I knew that what you spend my time, what you, what I was spending my time on was my priority. So how could I say otherwise? And that was how eventually I managed to, to make sure that amateur was the top priority. And then you could eat again and then you could <laughs> pay rent and things like that. Um, our next question is from Jordan Malanga in the UK. Uh, Jordan's question, though, is... With breaks between film projects, so this is actually a pretty relevant one right now, uh, what are good exercises to maintain or better your craft as a writer-director? Obviously watching movies, but I think going deeper into the movies is a key component because it's very easy to watch a film, come out of the theater, and then get on with your day and not really think about the structure, the craft, what somebody was saying, what it's engaging with. So one of the things that I have talked about doing is taking movies that I really respond to, that I really like, and then writing them up as a beat sheet, doing an outline to see what what is it that makes that story tick? What is the plot? What is the structure? Who are the characters? What is the conflict? You know, why was I so into this film? And sometimes it's because they're using a very traditional structure and there's a protagonist and an antagonist and it hits all of the screenplay beats. And sometimes what was driving the movie that made you interested in it was that it wasn't plot driven and there wasn't conflict. And I think it's really helpful to learn about yourself via that method. Another thing to do is to see if there's any screenplay readings, table reads, collectives, things to get you interacting more and talking more about movies. I know a lot of people come from places where they are the resident film expert but it's always great to have a conversation with somebody who knows more or is as passionate as you are and to seek out those people is one of the reasons why I moved to New York City 
from North Carolina because I felt like this was more of a filmmaking community and that, uh, you know, one of the reasons I started No Film School was because I felt like I could have a more intelligent conversation about movies online on the internet than I was in my own community back home. So, so trying to have those conversations and getting it out of your head will force you to, to think and discuss and dig deeper. And then to learn about production, if you can work on movies as a, even just as a production assistant, I mean, you're going to see how movies are put together, what it's like to be on set. You might be able to hear what the director is saying, how they're working, how actors are responding to learn the physical production nature of filmmaking. I, I was a production assistant long, long, long time ago. So to actually know how they're put together and what the expectations are and what you're going to go through is also really helpful, even if in between your projects, you're going from a higher level position to a lower level position, you might be able to work on something that has a higher budget and more resources and that you can see a set that operates in a way that you hadn't had the opportunity to be in command of. I think that can help as well. Our next question is from Douglas Tyler. Douglas was wondering if you could discuss in generalities or hypothetical numbers or percentages, uh, the compensation that goes to producers, directors, actors, etc. Maybe he's wondering if the whole film was union, you know, DGA, PGA, SAG, and if it's all contracted. Um, In typical indie film business plans, Douglas was saying that producer points are cashed in after the investors get their investment and return back. I'm guessing you're working with a set budget. Do you simply budget a salary or not take one to instead put into the film as career investment or compensated based on performance of the film? If you budget a salary for directors slash producers, must you justify that or did you have to justify that to Netflix? I think your producers are generally going to be the ones doing the budgeting. I'm the writer and director of Amateur. I'm not the producer. I think also as it, it being your first feature, the opportunity to launch your career and to make your movie is really the main goal, not the compensation. But you should be compensated. And there are scales for, especially where something like actors are concerned, you are essentially setting your budget level based on different Screen Actors Guild, SAG levels, and there's breakpoints essentially at what the actor's day or weekly rate will be based on the total budget. The same goes for IATSE on the crew union side. One reason I will say though, as a director, for you to fight for your own compensation is if you don't have very much initially, then you won't have that card to play later. As he mentioned, did you surrender it to the budget The reason to have a fee in the first place, not only to support yourself and to make sure that you're able to live throughout the course of this very long process, but also if you get to the point where someone tells you that you can't have this, whether it's an extra day of shooting or it's something for the camera, equipment-wise, vehicle-wise, set dressing-wise, you can use your fee as a negotiating point. To surrender that. No, to say... say, I will pay for that out of my fee. Take it out of my fee. And that's always part of the process. For me, making this movie, I cared far more about that than I did about how much money am I going to have in the bank when this is over. But that's also somewhat unique because I'm an entrepreneur and I'm the CEO of No Film School. And so I, I had a way to pay my rent regardless of the film. Traditionally, in film finance, the investors will start recouping first followed by the filmmakers 
And it depends on who your acquisition is by and what the original contract is in terms of the percentages and who has points and all these type of things. But usually there is an incentive for it to perform at the box office or for you to sell it at, at a festival, for example, for different people to get different amounts, which is all contractual from the beginning. With Netflix, it's a little bit different, of course, because it's going to be on Netflix worldwide and people are not going to the box office and spending money to see it. So those points are kind of moot. So there's a there's an assumption, and I think this is public information out there with the way that Netflix has made some of their larger movies, there's a little bit of profit for the filmmakers to ensure sustainability. And, and uh, again, the real thing is you're getting your film made and make sure you pay yourself enough to survive, but it's not going to be the most lucrative activity imaginable. I mean, we should all be in finance if, if money was what we wanted. But yes, most of the guilds set the other uh, day rates and fees and your producers will generally take care of the rest. And uh, Douglas was also wondering if the budget is set and too low for certain people's day rate, how difficult is it to negotiate with no possibility of back end? I think most people in film, once you get to the positions that aren't that are below the line, people don't expect points to generally play into it at the end of the day. Most films don't make money. So the promise of back-end points, it's nice. There are some things going on with the blockchain where that can potentially be much easier to track and to parcel out over time. But traditionally, those have been fairly meaningless. So if you can or if you can give out points, it's nice because then you, everyone feels participatory, and that's great. The Duplass brothers made famous a model where everyone got paid $100 a day on set, and then everyone had a variable number of points depending on whether they were the director or they were the gaffer. You know, they, they, they had uh, different proportions of points. So that, that, that can be a great incentive, but ultimately on an indie, the day rate's going to be low, and there's just crew members you're not going to be able to get. Mm-hmm. It's just based on their experience level. You have to be giving somebody an opportunity, and that's the reason they're going to do the movie, not your day rate. So if somebody was traditionally a camera operator, maybe you're making them a DP. If someone was an art director, maybe you're making them a production design. It's a way for them to bump up a level, and that's why they're going to do it for that credit, more so than you can negotiate money because you probably don't have more money to give them. Therefore, you need to give them an opportunity. Right. That career sustainability experience is going to be more valuable. And that's a great way to find people too is to say, hey, if someone tells you, I can't I can't do this movie for that amount of money. Let's say it's a DP. You can go back to them and say, okay, I, I completely understand that. I'm a fan of your work. I love, I'd love to hire you on my next film. Is there anyone that you've worked with on your cruise that you feel is ready to make the jump that I should reach out to. So don't be worried about the rejection from somebody because you might be able to get to somebody else who will take this lower fee for the opportunity from the person that rejected you. Uh, cool. Our, our next question is from Bolin Miller. Bolin says that he just heard back from someone about one of his scripts. This is the first time I have heard back from someone. And right after that, a head of acquisitions at a production company asked for the same script. I sent them both the script, and I'm not sure how to proceed. What do they want from me, and is it better if I have my own production team, or is it better if I don't? Should I ask for a meeting? It depends. Some 
studios, companies would want you to have a production company because that's who they work with if they're distributors. Others are going to want to identify themselves as the producers to potentially option the material to develop it with you to take it further. So absolutely, ask for a meeting because you're not going to be able to infer what it is they're looking for. They may have all sorts of different ideas. Someone may be thinking of you as the writer-director that they want to, to make this film. Others may think, we can purchase the screenplay from you, set it up with this other writer and punch it up and make it into a huge budget movie and then maybe it's something where you get paid a decent amount of money and walk away. You, I think without taking that meeting, you're not going to know and you should absolutely ask for a meeting if they have the screenplay and they can respond and then say, we didn't respond to the material so they can reject you from the meeting standpoint, but you have nothing to lose and I think you definitely want to turn it into a conversation, a face-to-face conversation as quickly as possible. And have you ever had experiences where if your screenplay is participating in markets of some kind and because there is a public announcement about that, so your your project and your name is kind of now out there, that you're starting to get emails and, and calls from those in the industry kind of maybe asking to see it or maybe it's not ready and it's too early and you're being told to maybe say, thank you, I will be happy to share it when it's ready, but like not right now. Did you ever find yourself kind of approached once your project became public in a development stage? and For sure. And I think you need to protect your not readiness. And there's going to be a pressure for people. People are going to ask to read it, but they're not going to give you, they're generally not going to give you multiple reads. So if you're sending somebody a script, it's got to be something that you've had read by other people that you workshop, that you're proud of, that you feel is tight. Because in my experience, when I've sent something and said, hey, this part isn't there yet, it's, they're not reading it with that proviso in mind, right? It's, it's good or it's not. They respond to it or they don't. So fight for the extra time. They will be there when you feel it's ready. You, there's no substitute for a first read and making a great first impression. So take the extra time and don't feel the pressure to send it to them immediately. The other thing I will say, part of the challenge with sending out screenplays is it's like dating. You're going to be ghosted. You're going to send a script to somebody that was excited about it and never hear back. So one thing I would recommend, if you're in this situation where these aren't pre-existing relationships and these aren't people that you've been in touch with and people are asking for it, you don't really know them in person, then you may want to think about email tracking. There are several out there. There's Gmail plugins. Streak has one. Mixmax has one. Boomerang. And what they do is they can tell you if somebody opened your email. They use a little one-pixel image that pings a server. And when someone opens your email, you will at least know that your email got through. Because a lot of the times, you're going to send something to somebody... If they don't respond, then you're worried, did I have the wrong email address? Did they, did they just not see it? You know, maybe you crossed their inbox and it was in a deluge of other emails and it got buried and they never even read the script. So I do think that producers and production companies, even though they get a volume of submissions, they should owe the writer a response to say, we didn't respond. Thank you for the material. Let us know when you have something else. Whatever it is, even if they're passing on you as a writer and they don't see you as having a bright future, at least reject us so we don't sit there thinking, oh gosh, do I email them again? Like what happened to this? So anyway, if you use a little bit of email tracking, 
it's a little bit of a controversial practice and some email clients are ignoring it. For example, they don't open images automatically so then you won't know whether someone opened it. But at the very least, if you see that someone opened your email and has not responded, at least you feel like, oh, okay, they didn't just miss it. It gives you a little bit more information than it was sending received. it out into the ether and then you know maybe five years later you cross paths with the someone and they tell you that they loved your movie and you say yeah I sent it to you and they go oh I never got it right yeah. you want to avoid that right so that's that's one thing that you can try to use to give yourself a little bit more insight that is also very great uh kind of dating comparison because that with the iPhones the first thing I did when I got the iPhone was shut off that when people can tell when read you read receipts, yeah, the read receipts. Oh my god, because yeah, well, that's, I came that from Android, so anxiety based. Yeah, I'm not used to and I mean, on Android, they also don't show whether you're typing, right? right. So that's the other, yeah. Anyway, there's more, uh, it's more comparisons there. It's scary. Uh, our next question is from Brian White, who has completed his. I'm assuming this is not Brian White who plays the father in my film. This is another Brian this White. This is another Brian White who's completed a script for his first feature and hopes to begin filming by the end of the year. Brian says, from what I've gathered on the internet, there are two main thoughts on making a feature. One, just go make a movie, no matter what. Or two, you really can't sell a movie without a quote-unquote face, celebrity notable face. So my question is, should I make my movie knowing I can get good performances from the actors that I have or wait and possibly not make it at all because I know I don't have enough money to obtain a recognizable face? I'm not looking to get rich off this movie. I'm looking at it as a starting point for a filmmaking career. Reading through Brian's question, I believe it says he's, where is he, in Alabama? Alabama. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be very hard if you haven't made a movie before to get a face in your film as a way of getting a much bigger budget, right? The cavalry is not coming. And it's hard enough in New York and L.A. I don't know where Brian wants to film his movie it could be New York or LA and oftentimes it's easier to film something very close to a quote face as in talent if it's close to their home and they can still live their lives it's easier to get somebody than it is if it's being filmed in Alabama or Denver for that matter because you're asking somebody for this movie can you leave your life and your family for the duration of the shoot or most of the shoot to work with this first-time filmmaker who's never made a movie before, it's a tough sell. I think, in general, make the film, get great performances, tell a great story, develop your voice, and even if it doesn't go to the stratosphere, if it's not acquired at a major festival, if you show your voice in your craft, it's going to be a step in the right direction. And the thing about it is, is it's a great calling card and it's a great work sample. So when you do write your next script and it's something that you've written, maybe based on the experience of this first movie where you didn't have a face and you've written a fascinating character that you think will attract bigger name actors, they can go to your first movie and watch it and say, this person knows what they're doing because of the X, Y, and Z strengths of the first film. And it's not the production value, right? It's, did you get those great performances you're talking about? Could you construct a scene? Could you pace the film in the edit room? How did it play? You know, it's it's a calling card for you. So that's what I would say. But I'd also think that if you really do want that face in your movie, 
then maybe you can make a short, which is easier to do in terms of every way, budget, length, all of, the, all of that. But that can also be a calling card in the same way that Amateur, my short prequel to Amateur, the Netflix feature, was a calling card because I'd written something that was more doable on no budget or a low budget, and you can listen to episode two of this podcast. But yeah, it's it's about making a short as a calling card as a way to then do exactly what I did, which is get recognizable faces in the movie and do it at at a larger budget level. Our next question is from Ryan McCarville. Uh, Ryan says, in episode seven, which is on the production, you discuss a call sheet pulled from day 21 of 25, is it possible to view an example from Amateur? I'm a visual learner, so actually reading through the call sheet as you talk about its contents would be really helpful. I understand if there are other legal reasons why you can't share, but just thought I'd ask the question. I actually don't think the call sheet would be that helpful. I, I don't know if I have the permission to share them anyway, but th- they're really not that interesting. And uh, certainly what you would need is you need the script to be able to look at it and to see what was in there and, and the call sheet. And it's, uh, you know... If you go out on the internet, there's a lot of call sheets out there. They all look pretty similar. It's, here's several scenes. This is the way the day is structured. These are the people that are being called in. Like, I really don't think it's that helpful, and I don't think I have the permission anyway. Uh, What I would say is the main things that a call sheet is going to tell you is what scenes you're filming that day, and that's going to inform your prep as the director in terms of what to get ready for. I didn't find the call sheet to be that instructive as the director because, beyond that because a lot of what a call sheet is doing is telling the prop master what they need and the various departments what they're going to need to prep for the day and, and the location department and the production designer, everything that they need to do. I mean, the call sheet is really making sure the crew has what they need to get through the day rather than creatively informing the director. I mean, for you, it's really just the schedule part of it. Listing the responsibilities. And, and the yeah, tasks. and then that 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 will prepare you in your own prep to go through those scenes and to make sure you know all the shots and creatively what you're looking for and, and, and all of that. But it's, it's really just what scenes are we filming today? And when, and when you were starting out, were there certain resources or online documents that did kind of help you to like, or was it just by being on set and going through experiences where you felt like, you know, what does a, you know, like mention like a call sheet look like? What do some of these things look like? Were there certain online resources where those examples are available that you kind of used or was it really just going through the experience of working on multiple productions? Hopefully No Film School is one of those resources. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Google. Sure, sure. Google has a lot. It'll direct you to No Film School and plenty of other places mm-hmm. as well. I didn't have a lot of experience with call sheets or any sort of production documents because I hadn't directed a lot. When I had, it was a web series that we did ourselves and we didn't really make call sheets. And for the short, we didn't have an AD. And really the reason that you're there is your voice and your creative instincts. And some of the documents will be a learning experience and you can ask your ADs to help you with that. I mean, ideally, you're the only person whose first movie this is. That ideal is probably not true, but you definitely want experienced people around you that you can ask these basic questions because you're not there because you have the most call sheet reading experience. You're there because of the story that you're telling and everything else that is unique to you as a storyteller. So 
that, yeah, you'll, you'll get the hang of the documents pretty quickly. I think that's not really the main thing to, uh, to worry about. Cool. Um, this question from Josh Ortiz, our last uh, listener question. This is about the film itself, so it's a little bit of a spoiler. So if you haven't seen uh, Amateur yet, you should, and just maybe fast forward for a few minutes. If you've listened to 10 hours of us podcasting and about this movie and you, haven't seen, and you haven't seen the movie, I would, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, an, episode, it's an episode and a half of, of a podcast, <laughs> the, the length of the entire film that output. So please go watch it on Netflix. Give us that little one view bump like, and then get, and then listen to the last five minutes here. they're like I just love production stories but I just don't <laughs> like actually watching movies even if you're not a basketball fan I think there'll be something there for you please watch this movie absolutely uh, well Josh did watch it and he has a question for, for you uh, when you first watch Amateur and Michael Rainey Jr. has this very uh, emotional scene at the end where he's crying uh, he's kind of wondering what was going through your head, actually. He said he watched this film after listening to all the first feature episodes available and couldn't help but remember all the struggles and obstacles that you had to go through while filming it. And so what exactly kind of went into your head for that scene? I'm not sure if he means as a writer, mm-hmm. as a director, but kind of that emotional, impactful, you know, quiet dialogue list scene moment in the film. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how close I want to get to the director just saying explicitly what the rest of the film is supposed to be communicating. I think there's always the option of the viewer adding their own interpretation, but the film is about a kid and therefore it takes place in the coming of age genre. And part of coming of age universally is saying goodbye. So this kid has encountered many things on his journey throughout the film, and um, yeah, I don't, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know, I don't yeah, know yeah. how deep I want to get into it. You know what I would say? I would say um, if you if you do us the favor of watching the film again, maybe 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 it will it will pop out. But it's 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 a uh, let's say it's a universal gotcha. moment. I don't want to get specific with. It's like it's like when you're at a Q and A and someone yeah. says, you know, what did you want to say with this film? It's like, well, if I could say what I wanted to say with the film in a sentence, then I wouldn't have made the movie. Yeah. You know, it, that's what's great about movies is that they are uh, they can say something without saying it explicitly by virtue of using all of the tools of cinema, exactly. right? Which is acting and music and structure and empathy and point of view and all of those things I don't want to be reductive to all of those elements contribution to the movie by just stating like this is what I was trying to say with right. the movie it, Michael it was his last day of, of shooting and Michael was very upset and that's why he was crying I'll just break it right down like that well, very I, did, emotionally I, I don't know sad. if I told the story on this podcast I think I did elsewhere do we talk about the equipment issues we had mm-hmm. I don't Let's remember do if we did, but we were shooting the movie on beta firmware, and that last shot of the movie was the third or fourth take, and that's because the first couple were lost to data corruption, which in the digital era is the equivalent of a bad gate in the film era. So let that be an anecdote for... Not only is filmmaking incredibly challenging, but even when you get a performance that you're happy with, in some cases, 
it will be taken away by the gods of Murphy's Law and you'll have to do something again, even when you as a director were happy with it and even when the actor was exactly where you wanted him or her emotionally, you will have to try to repeat it. And even if that is the very last shot of your film. So that was honestly one of the worst days of my life because of that happening and me having to tell Michael that he has to do it again and then it crashed again and then having to do it again. But that is filmmaking right there is you have your lowest of lows yet the overall experience and what the film has meant to me, to my career, to a lot of people who've seen it and given me feedback and talked about how their kids watched this movie five times back to back. I mean, it's also the highest of highs, which is what makes it all worth enduring. And mentioning those Q&As that you've had for the public screenings that that have been hosted, uh, were there certain, I'm kind of curious how that kind of audience interpretation, audience questions, we've all had you know, been in the room for some great Q&As with filmmakers, some that really went south. Uh, was there anything that kind of maybe hearing from other perspectives of now that it's out in the world and hearing questions that people do have about the film that maybe has changed or enhanced, you know, your view of the material or, may, or maybe in a, in a different light? Of course, you're so close to it that it has these actual experiences sharing it with audiences, you know, changed or or brought something new to it for you as well. I wouldn't say anything specific. What I would say is the thrill of releasing a movie on this scale through Netflix globally and and seeing the conversation in so many different languages, in some cases having to Google a different word than amateur because the title is different in other countries, has been inspiring to the level of giving me even more faith in the power of film to generate empathy and to tell stories and to open people's eyes to things that are going on either halfway around the world or right under their noses that they don't know about. And so to see people learning so much from the movie, from the educational aspect of this is going on and then forming an opinion based on that I think where independent film is concerned, especially that's part of our mission is to enable people to have the sensation of traveling without moving. That's what's so thrilling about sitting in a darkened theater and opening your eyes to something. So it's easy to get caught up in all of the speed bumps along the way and the ways in which you as a director didn't have your druthers or the sacrifices and compromises you made to get a film made or just the outright rejection along the way. But it it makes it all worth it to see that if you've shifted someone's opinion somewhere, much less so many times and thousands of times on social media, that that feeling makes the mission so worth it. Mm-hmm. And it felt great at the end of the process to know that I went into this with a very clear purpose and regardless of what people said about me or the film or the craft, that if I was able to achieve that with shifting some people's opinions and changing their minds, that it would all be worth it 
also was educational to me as a person to know what do I care about? Why do I want to make movies? And to get through the end of the process, there's no substitute for that. Like that will inform the rest of my career. And that's why making your first feature is so worth it, not because you get these opportunities in the industry, but because you learn about yourself in a way that I don't think you can learn about yourself through any other experience. Well, that was yeah, that was a good, almost like a good, profound uh, conclusion. If 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 we want to kind of wrap up, if, I, 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 yeah, let's yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, that's like a very solid. Uh, I just want to throw out too. Of course, the film is streaming and available on Netflix. Um, as a filmmaker who had a Netflix original production, is there any discussion about like home video rights and things of that nature? Of course, DVDs and you know. Home video is kind of going the way of the dodo bar, dodo bird. Um, but in terms of like, do you could there ever be like a physical copy, Blu-ray, DVD of amateur director's commentary? Of course, after ten hours of the podcast, we've we've done that several times. But you know, things of that nature. As far as DVDs and Blu-rays are concerned, if you backed it as a Kickstarter backer, oh. you are the only ones. That is your special perk. Okay. Well, so if you did this seven years ago, it's coming to you. Exactly. Okay. That's great to know. Great to know. For the rest of you, it's on Netflix. Please watch it. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening to this 10-hour podcast. It's like Andy Warhol art installation. We're just playing it in in unison over and over again. And uh, it it should almost come with like a surprise ending or something. (laughs) And, and also, I, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to make this podcast was it's a step-by-step instruction manual for hopefully avoiding some of the pitfalls and, and things that I ran into along the way in making my first feature. So I hope that if you've listened to this, and whether that's now in 2018 or down the road, because you've treated it as that guide and that manual and that here's what to look out for uh, kind of messaging, uh, and you're going into your own first feature, I hope this is helpful and good luck. Break a leg. This was the last episode of the first feature, but this is not the last No Film School podcast. There will be many more coming on iTunes, SoundCloud, Overcast, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, whatever your app is, make sure you're subscribed to the No Film School podcast, which this was part of, but which will have interviews and weekly news recaps and everything going on in the world of independent filmmaking. There are always articles going up at nofilmschool.com. Eric, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter at Eric Lures. I am on Twitter at Ryan B. Koo. The goal with doing the first feature was not for this to be the last, the first feature. So stay tuned to No Film School. Maybe in the future we'll have somebody else's story as they go through this odyssey, which will be very different, I'm sure. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the whole thing.